0: Hey everyone, Taxman here. This episode is going to be released on July 1st, which is Canada Day. Now, if you are our international listening audience, then congratulations, now you know when Canada Day is. If you're Canadian, you'll know that right now there's a deep philosophical, deep historical, and deep rooted conversation right now happening in this country of whether or not to cancel Canada Day. Now, this is In large part to the discovery of literally thousands, and I'm sure that that number is going to climb as we really start investigating these sites. Thousands of unmarked graves of children who were killed during the residential school system in this country's dark history. I don't personally believe that cancelling Canada Day and cancel culture in itself is a good idea here what i and this is me personally what i think needs to happen is we really need to use this canada day and events moving forward to really shine a light on the reconciliation that needs to happen with our first nations people and canada as a country so with all that being said before we get today's episode off i'm going to be playing the canadian national anthem now it's my hope that you'll take that time to reflect on what's been happening in Canada. Uh, maybe do some personal reflection if there are things that you can do better to you know, help understand somebody else's struggle or help your community in some way, shape, or form. Or maybe you just take the time to read about what happened with the residential school systems. Or maybe you just take the time to read about some of the not so great history of Canada because while I do love this country and while there are great things, great people and great, it's just, it's, it's a great country, but we do have a very sort past and we need to come together now more than ever to really rectify and reconcile what happened and move forward with that knowledge as a nation and as people in this great nation called Canada. So anyways, I didn't want to start the episode off on a downer, but I do really feel like this is something that needs to be said. So, once again, I'm going to play the Canadian National Anthem. I would highly suggest that you take that time to reflect on, if you are Canadian, what it is to be Canadian. And if you're not, then take the time, research what's happening in this country, because it's, it's very important. And it's something that's going to be with us. Us for a long long time and we better get used to it and we better be open-minded and we better do something about it so after the Canadian national anthem is done playing we're gonna get into this program Before Kenny Omega, before Chris Jericho, before Edge, before Christian Cage, before Gene Kineski, Killer Kowalski, Whipper Billy Watson, Edward Carpentier, or any of the other great Canadian heavyweight champions, there was the original, Jack Taylor. Join us in this month's episode as we take a deep dive into one of the legendary Canadian great heavyweight champions, as we shine a light on a forgotten legend of Canadian professional wrestling. This is Grappling with Canada, and today we cover Jack Taylor. Hello everyone, and to grappling with Canada and happy Canada Day to all of my fellow Canadians I'm your host as usual the tax man and I'm very excited to be going back in our way back machine today and taking a look at Canadian wrestling legend Jack Taylor now if Jack Taylor is a name that you were perhaps not that familiar with we are gonna change that today and that's honestly the part of the program that I love the most is going through the rich history of Canadian professional wrestling, finding these people that maybe have been forgotten to the sands of time, or somebody who you just flat out have never heard of before, because maybe you're like me, you're in your mid-30s, and you would have no connection at all to somebody like Jack Taylor. Maybe you are, you know, in your 60s or 70s, you've heard the legend of Jack Taylor, and uh, and this is a bit of a refresher for you. Maybe you're brand new getting into wrestling. Maybe you're somebody's kid, like like I got two kids. They're not into it just yet, but maybe that's your cup of tea. And, and programs like this are going to give you the introduction into people from Canada's wrestling past who you should uh, really do some research and know a little bit more about. And that's why I'm very happy to be doing that with Jack Taylor today. Now, before we get any further... I just want to clear up a little bit of housekeeping. So, if this your if this is your first time to the program, welcome aboard. Uh, you can find grappling with Canada on Twitter at six underscore podcast. Uh, you can find us now on Facebook. Come join our wonderful Facebook group. Although it is small, it's been growing uh, very steadily, and I'm very happy to that uh, everybody's been checking that out. Uh, use that wonderful Facebook search bar type in grappling with canada you'll find the grappling with canada page give that a like and come on and join the grappling with canada group as well you can also find us on instagram i just search grappling with canada on there as well you can also find us on tinyurl.com grappling with canada there you'll find some amazon links to the book that you're going to hear a little bit later on in this program as well as Books from other various authors who have been on this program in its past and speaking about this program in its past if this is your first time listening like I said welcome aboard you can go into the archives and check out past episodes that we've done on Earthquake John Tenta on Billy Two Rivers on Gene Kanisky Gail Kim Dino Bravo and Stu Hart and Stampede Wrestling and once again thank you everybody who have been checking out the episodes from the archives lately it's very much appreciated. Keep passing it along to your friends and family. And uh, and let's have some fun rediscovering some Canadian professional wrestling history. One other thing that I will mention is it is July. It's been sweltering hot lately here in Manitoba. And if you ever wanted to buy your old friend, the tax man, a beer, you can. Buymeacoffee.com slash grapplingwithcanada is a little donation... Avenue, if you will, uh, where you can you can go ahead and buy me a beer, funny enough. So uh, once again, this program is completely uh, run by myself. There's no producer, there's no editor, there's no researcher, there's just me and the wonderful guests who I have on the program, one of which, who you're going to hear today, w- was an exceptional listen and uh, and a tremendous conversation that I had and we also have a little throw in tidbit at the end of that conversation regarding somebody else who you would have heard on a previous program so make sure you stay tuned to the very end of the program so you can hear all of that as well now this episode is going to be a little bit different than past episodes that I have aired mainly because there quite frankly is no audio of Jack Taylor there's no video really of him either uh, what you can see is very grainy. It is out there and you got to really search for it. Unfortunately, that's also kind of why there's no photography about him as well, which does limit a little bit of what I do in this program. But like I said, thankfully, I have a tremendous guest who's going to be joining the program to really get into the meat and potatoes, if you will, of Jack Taylor. So unfortunately, you won't have that kind of historical audio presentation that I love to put into these programs. I especially loved the audio. Not that I want to go too much into past projects, but the audio that I had for last month's episode uh, with the John Tenta earthquake episode, uh, some of that was tremendous to uncover. So once again, if you listen to that, I really do hope that you enjoyed it. Speaking of, if you are listening on iTunes, if you can go ahead and leave a five-star review Uh, I will make sure that I read it on the next available episode. And speaking of that, I have a five-star review that I have to read later on in this episode as well. So whether you are listening on iTunes, whether you're listening on Google Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you buy, trade, sell, barter, steal, whatever, your favorite podcast, uh, Grappling with Canada is where you can find it. And uh, like I said, make sure you pass it along to your friends and family. Alright, now let's get into today's program. Every country has its legendary wrestling figure who is larger than life and helped to popularize the sport in their respective country or region. Born in 1887, Jack Taylor is that figure in Canada. In the 1910s, Taylor first began climbing the ladder in the Canadian professional wrestling arena. By 1914, he was in championship matches with Charlie Cutler, which showed that he was a real deal. Shortly after that, he began touring around America and in Canada, and that's when he really made his name as one of the greatest Canadian wrestlers of all time, eventually becoming the Canadian heavyweight champion. Now, I could go in depth into where he was, what he did, things of that nature, But rather than me tell you that, I'm very pleased to be bringing on a very special guest who is really going to dive into the life, career, and the impressiveness of Jack Taylor and what he did for Canadian professional wrestling and professional wrestling in North America as well. Alright, very proud to be joined on the line right now by wrestling author and historian Nathan Hatton. Nathan, how are you doing today? Doing very well, thank you Andy. So, before we get into the context of today's program, obviously we're talking about wrestling legend and and someone from in our way back machine, if you will, Jack Taylor. Uh, First off, I want to hear a little bit about yourself. uh, Kind of what sparked your interest in wrestling, and then I want to talk a little bit about the book that you wrote as well.
1: Yeah, sure. So I've always been interested in wrestling. So I grew up in Saskatchewan, and some of my earliest memories are Stampede Wrestling on our little black and white television. I wasn't allowed to watch it, but, you know, I would... I was sneak views in the early 1980s when my mom wasn't uh, wasn't watching. <laughs> but that was sort of the beginning of things. And then I guess around late 84 or so, um, Stampede transitioned over for a year or so to the WWF at the time. And then it was back to Stampede for, for a few years. Then we moved to Ontario. So I've, I've had a long interest in wrestling. So there's that aspect to it. But then... The other aspect is I've always had an interest in amateur wrestling. And my brother was an amateur wrestler. I started doing amateur wrestling. We had a little club in uh, White River, Ontario, when I was in, I guess, the seventh grade, I think, is when I started doing that. But then I got to high school, and the team was cut. So uh, I got into martial arts, and then I started to get into Uh, Submission grappling, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, things like that. Now, at that same time, I'm still maintaining interest in professional wrestling. And we had a little library at my school. And even though I couldn't wrestle, I was interested in wrestling technique. And a lot of those books would have sections on the history of the sport. So I was interested in professional wrestling. I got interested in the, the technical end of actual sport of wrestling. And then I got interested in the history of wrestling. And I found that all of those things really converged. And that was particularly the case when you're looking at early 20th century wrestling, because the wrestling that was done then was presented very differently. That line between, you know, if you want to use the wrestling terminology, which I'm, I'm somewhat remiss to do, but between uh, work and shoot was a, a bit more blurry and all that type of stuff. So, uh As the years went on, I I ended up going to Teachers College, this is around 2003, and it was in Ottawa, and by that point in time, my interest in wrestling history was really blossoming, so I spent a ton of time at Library and Archives Canada doing research on on wrestling. And that's, in fact, the early research that I started to do around 2003, that was what was really the, the formative research that ultimately went into my book, Thrashing Seasons. So a couple of years go by. Um, I'm teaching, I go into a master's, but I have one purpose, and that is to research the history of wrestling. And I'm gonna do my dissertation on that. And I did that. And then I did graduate work beyond that at the doctoral level, and I I did my doctoral research on wrestling in Western Canada. And I finished with my PhD in twenty twelve. And I've been teaching at Lakehead University. Um, since, since 2013. But all of that research going back to 2003 and even a little bit before that, that's the research that ultimately went into, into uh, my book, Thrashing Seasons. So that's a long story about how I got interested in all of this stuff, I guess. I should also say that my interest in submission wrestling and professional wrestling was probably fed also by guys like Stu Hart because, you know, in the mid-1990s, You would see some footage of him stretching guys, and that made me realize that there was more to professional wrestling than just what you saw in exhibitions on television. And obviously, he'd been schooled in wrestling decades and decades before that. So I figured there was a lot more to this sport than just what we saw on TV. And absolutely, I was right. So I got interested in exploring the, the technical evolution of professional wrestling as well.
0: I find it absolutely fascinating that you kind of start with, you know, having to sneak your views of professional wrestling, televised wrestling. You move into what people would call legitimate or amateur wrestling, and then you're still drawn back to the world of professional wrestling, but the historical side of it, uh, to me, that's – I'm blown away by that. Usually it's it's, um, maybe the television stuff, but people don't really like – jump right away to trying to understand and learn the backstory and trying to figure out how this whole thing came to be. And to me that seems like that's what really started to peak you almost right from the start.
1: Yeah, I was, you know, I I kind of maintained a a holistic view of this. I was interested, like I'm interested in really good technical professional wrestling as well. And I, I don't watch today's WWE or, or, Uh, AEW or anything like that. There's some stuff I'll selectively watch today in professional wrestling, but I I basically go back and watch old World of Sports stuff. I watch some older Japanese stuff. Um, You know, in terms of North American stuff, I watch a lot of stuff by guys like Les Thornton, you know, technical wrestlers, the, the Briscoes. So... For me, it's wanting to understand wrestling on multiple levels. And I study the history of professional wrestling, particularly in Canada, but I also study the history of amateur wrestling and also how those things come together and those things converge. So I look at wrestling
0: on multiple levels. So, and the book that we've been referencing is called Thrashing Seasons, Sporting Culture in Manitoba and the Genesis of Prairie Wrestling. Um... Was was that more of like a passion project for you? I know you said that it was part of your thesis as well, but did you find that in writing the book you were drawn more into the history, or or is it just was the book kind of a culmination of all of the facts and all of the information and all of that kind of knowledge that sparked you to really dive into it? How did that come to be for you? You
1: know, I think all of that. I was passionate about that before when i pursued graduate work it was for the singular purpose of unearthing the, the history of wrestling in canada because there hadn't been a lot that was done on it particularly on the period before the great depression and you know everything in my life in in one way or another seems to involve uh, wrestling there's not a day that goes by or probably an hour where it's not on my head for <laughs> some reason uh, that might be, you know, if I'm a coaching a Brazilian jiu-jitsu class, because really Brazilian jiu-jitsu is a form of, of jacketed wrestling, or I'm thinking about professional wrestling or something. So I already had the passion before, but that, that passion certainly hasn't died off. It's just, it's just been more of the same. I'm taking my academic career definitely in, in different directions now, away from wrestling, but my, my love for wrestling has, you know, it's, it's never died one bit since my childhood.
0: Yeah, it's, and I, I'm not as much as yourself because clearly I'm not a published author or anything th- to that effect. But to me, it's it's th- your passion kind of gets redirected, right? I'm am the same way. The, today's product is not really for me, and that's okay. It's it's not, you know, it's not my cup of tea, if you will. I'm very much on par with you in terms of you know the the technical wrestling. That's what I liked. And still enjoy to watch. You don't really see that now. It's it's a lot of the high flying, acrobatic, whatever, and everybody's very skilled. And I I, I respect the hell out of everybody who does it. But it's just it's not not what I prefer. So I definitely uh, completely understand where you're coming from in that um, aspect of everything. Now, in regards to today's subject matter, which is Jack Taylor, was this somebody who you were cued onto before you had started writing the book, or is this a name that came to you kind of, you know, as you started to get through the layers and the years of professional wrestling, um, either before the Great Depression, like you were saying, or or as you started getting into the deeper layers of, of the 40s, into the 30s, into the 20s? Yeah, Jack
1: Taylor was a, a guy that I knew about for a long time, probably since the, the late 1990s. I was probably introduced to his name, if, if I recall, through uh, a book by, it's sort of a compilation book, Wyoming's Nestling Rancher by um, the daughter of Clarence Eklund, who you have to discuss in relation to, to Jack Taylor's career. So she put together this compilation book uh, regarding her her, her father, uh, it was Hazel uh, Eklund Odegaard was her name, and she put together this this compilation piece, and there was bios of different people who trained on their ranch in Wyoming, or other wrestlers that that her father, Clarence Eklund, had trained, and one of those guys was Jack Taylor, and I took an interest in that, because he was a Canadian, for one, and he was a heavyweight, so when I started doing my research uh, intensively in 2003, right from the outset, I was looking at Jack Taylor's career.
0: And in relation to his career, and we're going to dive into it, you know, in a little bit of depth here as we kind of move along. And this is kind of a, a hard question to ask, I understand, because there's really no video evidence. There's no, you know, there's you're not going to go on YouTube and find a shoot promo, for example. When you were researching the book and specifically researching Jack Taylor... How much difficulty did you have trying to differentiate fact from fiction? Or even how hard was it for you to get information in regards to the career of Jack Taylor?
1: Well, you know, in terms of fact versus fiction, that's always that's always a, a difficult thing because wrestling's always associated with a bit of <laughs> yeah. intrigue and, and ballyhoo. But Jack Taylor seemed to be a guy who didn't spin a lot of tales about himself. He didn't wrestle under a, a large... You know, a, a assortment of names or anything like that, and most of what he seemed to say uh, was was backed up by other records. And you know, what you need to do, of course, with any of this stuff, the main public record for wrestling is is through newspapers, but you also want to look at other corroborative records as well. So, you know, for example, in thrashing seasons, obviously, I use newspapers. Uh, they are necessarily flawed documents because. Journalists are interested in the sensational, not necessarily in the, the average, the mundane, and, and the everyday. They
0: want to sell papers. Well, we especially and see that today, unfortunately.
1: Sure, sure, absolutely. And you know a lot of those things were... I mean, we, we talk about the competition today for, for online readership, but if you go back 120 years, a lot of cities had multiple daily newspapers. So there's also competition to, to scoop the headline back then. So a lot of those records are backed up with... For example, in thrashing seasons, census records, uh, drawing on records from the soldier records from the First World War, YMCA records, uh, property records, city directories, uh, city bylaws. Any number of of other sources are used to, in that case, create the the picture of of wrestling in Western Canada. And also those types of sources are used with with Jack Taylor um, as well. Now, is it challenging? I think in a lot of ways it's become easier. So for example, when I started doing research on Jack Taylor, if you want to use newspapers, you had to go to microfilm. So it was day after day after day of going through newspapers, looking for reports on on wrestling. And back then wrestling wasn't arranged on a, a regular schedule. So there might be a number of wrestling matches over a series of months. And then in a city, you might not see wrestling again for a year. So it involves a lot of hard work and, and, and discipline and just slogging through the papers. Uh, today, in, in a lot of ways, it's easier because a lot of the newspapers have been digitized and a lot of that uh, information is available just through keyword searches and things like that. But when I was doing my research on Jack Taylor, um, and in fact, when I was doing my research on thrashing seasons, that technology really didn't exist. So a lot of that's just done through basic, basic analog uh, you know, footwork as opposed to doing it digitally. So it's a little bit easier. And you know, over the, the years since then, I've, I've continued to flesh out Jack Taylor's career. And I think I've got a fairly, uh, fairly complete sort of picture of, of his life course, uh, particularly through his career in wrestling.
0: Yeah. And, you know, the names of cities that we're going to be going through, it's not like it's, you know, there's, there's no set schedule run like you would have in today's or even, you know, going back into the early 2000s or the nineties or whatever, you know, a schedule run of events from, you know, whether it be WWE or WCW back in the day, or even the NWA before then, you know, you could be in Saskatchewan one night and then you're going down to Montana for a stint, and then you maybe you're going to Nebraska or whatever. Exactly. It, it, it's yeah, I, I could see exactly what you're talking about. How hard it is to kind of find find the tendrils and find the kernels of information to kind of piece everything and make make a cohesive story out of everything. Right,
1: because you know, when Jack Taylor was. Uh, in his prime, that was prior to the period of the territories. So, you know, with the modern territory system, which is really a, a product of the post-second world war, and in fact, you know, the, the after 1948, the creation of the, the NWA, you got established territories, and you know, it's kind of known that guys will appear in this city this night and then another city this night. So you know, Stampede, for example, had its circuit. Well, you didn't have territories like that. So a lot of wrestlers, they basically had to do their own bookings. So as a result, it could be feast or famine, and you know quite quite as you, you put it, they might be in Saskatoon one day, then off to Montana, and then back to Regina. Uh, there there wasn't a there wasn't a well established and coherent pattern to to their wrestling always.
0: So as we kind of start to dig into Jack Taylor's career, from everything that I've been able to come across, um, like he was born in Ontario, but then he moves west in his twenties. And I believe it's in uh, Saskatchewan is when, uh, when he starts kind of getting or dipping his toes into the world of professional wrestling. Is that correct? Yeah, that's
1: right. So Jack Taylor, he's born on January 6, 1887, and he's sort of born in, uh, in Bruce County, uh, in the Chepstow, Glamis area. So he starts his professional wrestling career in 1912. Now, you have to consider for the times – I mean, he's about 25 when he starts his professional wrestling career. You know, it's not like today when a person can spend their 20s sort of finding themselves or, or something like that. Although, I suppose in Jack Taylor's case, not starting until his, his mid-20s in wrestling, he kind of did do that. But you, you have to consider that by the time he was uh, starting his wrestling, he already had a lot of work behind him. He'd already sort of tried a variety of careers. But he was a big guy, and we can we can discuss the details of that if, if, if you're interested. But he meets up with Clarence Ackland. And Clarence Ackland at that time was homesteading, uh, and I mean that two ways, around Moose Jaw. So he was, he was homesteading a farm outside of Moose Jaw. But in, in wrestling parlance from the period homesteading is when you pick a home base and you would wrestle out of that area. So he starts to train uh, Jack Taylor, and, you know Jack Taylor must have showed some promise. Um, Jack Taylor uh, then starts living in Lethbridge and he becomes a, a police officer with Lethbridge police force and then he starts his professional career uh, you know, as, as early as we can determine uh, about in April of 1912. So he's under the tutelage of, of Eklund and he remains under his tutelage and then he he sort of starts his career um, in Alberta in
0: 1912. So I'm, I and maybe you would know, is it, was the path for Jack, he went to work on the farm, Clarence saw him, thought maybe he could transition to wrestling and did it that way, or did he know that Clarence was in wrestling, figured he could get in at the farm and get the training that way, or, or how, how did that conversation uh, happen, I guess? You
1: know, that's, that's something that's not known, at least it's not known by me. The precise details of how he met Clarence Eklund and went about that training, uh, difficult to say. Now, I have come across records that a few years before this, if I recall, maybe 1906, he might have taken out um,
0: homesteading rights on a on a farm of his own. Okay. The problem is, Jack Taylor, Jack is short for John, and there's a lot of... Oh, uh, yeah.
1: Yeah, so it's it's a bit of a challenge putting that together. But it looks like he might have been living uh, for a time before that in Moose Jaw. And how that conversation unfolded, I really wish I know, or or I did know, because Clarence Eklund never revealed that. And as far as I know, Jack Taylor didn't, because uh, unfortunately, like most wrestlers, he never left any type of uh, uh, a memoir. But uh, yeah, he was certainly associated with Clarence Eklund. And then he moves on to to Alberta, and that's where he starts challenging local talent, and then he starts taking on bigger and bigger fish.
0: So before he starts really getting into the world of professional wrestling, he moves to Lethbridge, if I'm correct. And is it true that he, he joined the police force there as well?
1: Yeah, so he was a... He was a police officer for a, a short period in, in Lethbridge. Now, he's certainly not, if you read, and I talk about it uh, at length in in thrashing seasons, he's certainly not the first professional wrestler slash cop in in Western Canada. Um, but he does serve on the, the police force for a time. Now, how exactly he's released from the police force, I'm not sure. How exactly he enrolls in the police force, I'm not sure. There's a story that comes up, and again, the problem is... Uh, you know, the name Jack Taylor is fairly common, but uh, there is a report of a guy who was harassing some woman in, in a, a cafe, and then some guy named Jack Taylor stood up for the woman and and uh, knocked the guy silly. So,
0: <laughs>
1: and so that could have been Jack Taylor. That might have been our Jack Taylor, and that might have gotten the attention of the Westbridge Police Force. I think this was around 1910 or something like that, and uh, maybe he was hired on. Now, he was, to, to, uh, he was probably laid off. Tough to say exactly because um, he said he was fired, but at that point in time, we didn't have multiple euphemistic gradients for losing your job. Like today, you might say downsized or laid off or right-sized or something like yes. that. You know, 100 years ago, 120 years ago, if you if you got laid off, you'd say fired often. Uh, if you got fired, you know, for sleeping on the job or whatever, you got fired. So we, we didn't have the diversity of terminology around that. But really by 1912, that's when he starts, that's when he decides he's going to make it go of being, uh, a professional wrestler.
0: So when he, when he starts really getting into professional wrestling, was that out of Lethbridge immediately, or did he have to move around in Alberta to get, or find opponents, or find promotions to wrestle for?
1: So at that time, there weren't really promotions that we understand today, um, you, know, you might have a theater manager or someone like that who would host wrestling at their, you know, at, at their venue. So our, our notion of, of promoters, uh, well, I mean, that, that's a complicated issue because in some areas there were regular promoters. So, for example, if you go to Montreal at the same time, uh, you had you know George Kennedy and he was promoting weekly cards. Yes. Doing out of Stormy Park, so that was a uh, Stormy Park. That's a very very consistent. This schedule but for the for the most part that didn't exist elsewhere in Canada that was that was an exception
0: well and certainly so, not but, out west at that point
1: absolutely not right so this is still the he's still in the midst of the immigration boom a lot of these communities are still growing so yeah a lot of his early matches are are wrestle in Lethbridge and he, he kind of it, it makes sense because he's established as a, a hometown boy so he's sort of homesteading there and he gets uh, uh you know obviously as a result of that he gets a lot of uh, of locals to follow him as far as I can see his his first match was probably in uh, Raymond Alberta and his first couple matches are against another guy who was wrestling regularly or semi-regularly in the the Lethbridge area a guy by the name of Jack Ellison and and Jack Ellison had began his career a few years earlier and his his family was really from uh Cardson they were part of the the great Mormon exodus that occurred to Alberta yeah um you know uh you know, uh, uh, before that, so his family was part of that, but he was like a kind of like a light heavyweight. So, in terms of size, he wasn't really in, in Taylor's class. So, you know, Taylor knocks him off, then you start to see some of these American talents start to come in after that. Uh, Oscar Wassum, for example, who was like a light heavyweight, he'd be, you know, not a top level, but like a second tier guy. Uh, Bob Managoff. Comes in. Uh, people might be more familiar with his son, Bobby Manigoff Jr. Uh, Bob Manigoff is also maybe known because uh, he was wrestling in a, uh, like an athletic show with Frank Gotch at the end of his career, and uh, that's when Frank Gotch breaks his leg, and yeah.
0: that's <laughs> so
1: almost the end of, of Gotch's career. But yeah, that was, that was it. It was an that was
0: him. Hey, eh? wow. Like,
1: yeah, it wasn't as a result of a submission hold or anything like that. He just uh, got an injury. So these guys start to come in and then uh, other well-known guys from the West Coast, such as John Berg. Uh, again, uh, a guy's more or less a light heavyweight, but he was uh, a, a real super, superstar on the West Coast. Um, if you go back to the turn of the century, he wrestled some of the most epic encounters in the history of Canadian wrestling against a, a guy by the name of Tom Davies. We're talking like marathon bus. three plus uh, One of his bouts was over three hours with Tom Jeez. Davies. So he starts to deal with, Feel you know, stronger and stronger talent as time goes on. And from there, he's sort of stretching his tendrils out to, to Moose Jaw and to, to Medicine Hat and other cities in that region.
0: So as his career kind of progresses now, we're moving into, you know, we're in 1912, 1913, 1914. Is that the period of time where he encountered Frank Gosh for the first time?
1: Well, you know, um, he never really had much to do with Frank Gotch. Uh, he, he had a great deal to do with Frank Gotch's trainer, uh, Farmer Burns. Oh,
0: so okay, his, yeah.
1: Yeah, so, so Frank Gotch was trained by Farmer Burns. And Farmer Burns is, uh, you know, the, the peak of his career was really in the 1890s, but he probably did more to develop professional wrestling in the United States. And in fact, amateur wrestling in the United States and particularly, you know, the, the, Nebraska, Iowa hotbed of wrestling than, than anybody else. So what happens by 1913, um, Jack Taylor's training with him. So he's got this double pedigree. He changed, he trained with Clarence Eklund, who was uh, you know an absolutely stellar wrestler and he trained tons of wrestlers himself. And then he also trained, with, with the great farmer Burns. So he's got, he's got some pretty strong lineage in terms of, of, of training. And that's as far as you can determine, he's probably down there in the early spring of, of 1913 because it's at that point in time where he starts to encounter some of the really world, well, you know, the world-class wrestlers uh, on the American scene. And that's people like, um, Dr. Ben Roller. Ben Roller was probably his first great American opponent.
0: And in terms of, so I, I know that we're kind of jumping years a little bit here. So I don't I don't mean to confuse anybody or the conversation or, um. So, thirteen, like we're we're talking thirteen, fourteen. He's he's training, but he's also encountering more, um, American talent. Um, I did come across a name and I wanted to ask you about uh, Charles Cutler. Uh, from what I could read, they had a series of matches. I'm not sure where in Western Canada it was, I, but I know that one of the matches, uh, the, one of the most notable matches, I should say, was here in Winnipeg. And that was kind of a, a controversial match, if you will.
1: Yeah, sure. So um, to kind of contextualize this, so... You know, Frank Gotch goes through many retirements. So he's kind of leaving the heavyweight professional scene. Uh, you know, kind of after 1911, he kind of semi-retires. He's back in 1913 again. A uh, you know, famous match, for example, against the, the Estonian George Lurk. But what, you know, he's he's kind of going away. So who's going to replace this guy in, in the eyes to the American public because he was this, you know, giant figure. He's like a Wayne Gretzky type figure or a,
0: I was just uh, going to say that. James,
1: yeah. Right. Huge figure. So there's a bit of a vacuum here and a lot of people then start to fight for, uh, of course, Frank got is not wrestling any of these individuals, but there's all these individuals who are kind of claiming either the American title or the, uh, the world's championships. You got guys like Jess Westergaard, Henry Ordeman, and then into that mix uh, comes Charles Cutler. and Charles Cutler was a, a boxer. He'd been a, a, a sparring partner, for example, of the, the great Jack Johnson. And then he turns to wrestling. And, yeah, so he comes to Western Canada. And, yeah, they, they wrestled a series of matches. Like, they probably wrestled, uh, oh, I, I wouldn't know how many matches in total. Probably seven or eight off the top of my head. But... Uh, They they first face one another. This this rivalry begins in in Saskatoon where they they wrestle a draw. And then the match that you're talking about in, yeah, in Winnipeg, that's that's in 1914. And it's kind of a strange match because what happens is that um, they're wrestling and Jack Taylor, uh, well, well, Color had won the, the first fall. Most matches of that time were staged on a best two out of three Fall basis. So yes. Cutler wins the first fall, and then in the mix, at some point in time, uh, if I recall, Cutler sort of, uh, Taylor sort of sitting up, and and Cutler grabs him around the neck. And in most matches, the stranglehold was barred, unless it was explicitly stated that it wasn't. Uh, it was barred. So the, the referee at that time was was Alex Stewart. Al- Alex Stewart was a, a mainstay of. Of wrestling he was a smaller guy like a bantamweight lightweight but he was a referee for that match and what happens is he ends up disqualifying cutler and he gives the match and the title the world's title to jack taylor so here's where jack taylor <laughs> gets his only sort of claim to the world's heavyweight title um but in fact I mean it's so shrouded in controversy winning, winning a title on a, a DQ he doesn't really promote himself as the, the world's champion or anything like that so you don't really hear much of that after a, after a short while. Um, but yeah that was that was certainly a, a controversial match and then they continue to wrestle a few times. Um, the last time that they wrestled in Canada is in the, the fall of 1915 and that's in, in Calgary and, and that match actually it, it kind of killed wrestling in calgary because jack taylor uh in the midst of that match uh punches charles cutler in the jaw and, and, and knocks him down and he gets disqualified and you know today in wrestling that would be that would be nothing right yes but that was uh you know that was a big contravention of the rules of that point in time and you don't see wrestling for a number of years in, in calgary after that Now, it might have been in part because of that, but but wrestling in general was dying out during that time in Canada because of the war. So you see fewer and fewer uh, cards. You know, um, Canada enters into the First World War in 1914, so you just see a lot less wrestling. You see a heck of a lot more boxing, but a lot less wrestling for the next several years, and that's
0: across Canada. And we'll just contextualize, too, a little bit, because... I know people who don't follow wrestling, there's quite a few people who don't follow wrestling and Listen in this program, and they're going to say, oh, a, a punch ended the match. Well, up until very recently, there was a list of rules in a wrestling match, and the rules had to be followed. And if you, the, the rules were different between regions, between not promotions in this era, uh, but different promoters or different agreements between the wrestlers. So, if there was an illegal punch or an illegal choke or, you know, some kind of um, maneuver that's not within the text of the of the match, that match is, ends in a DQ. Now, obviously, that's kind of gone by the wayside in, in today's day and age. You know, guys get away with murder nowadays. But back, back in this time, and even if you go up through the 70s, and into the '80s and, and even times in the '90s, you'll look at WCW when Bill Watts was there, and going over the top rope, for example, was illegal in a lot of territories. So there yeah, has there, there has been. Right. Sorry, go ahead.
1: No, so you're right. I mean, this is that's it's a bit of a digression, but there was a you wouldn't know it now, but at one point in time, referees. Uh, played a a very important role in in wrestling matches. They weren't there to be
0: ignored, and they didn't just sort of stand there and not do 10 counts when guys jumped out the ring. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah, so, you know, at that time, the, the other thing, too, is that wrestling was just conceived of differently because wrestling was seen less as entertainment and more as sport during this time. So if you were to watch a wrestling match from that period, you know, from 1915, let's say, and there's really very little footage of that, they do not look anything like a wrestling match from, from today. And this is so difficult for, for professional wrestling uh, fans to kind of understand now because professional wrestling, uh, you know, it, it, it creates such a vivid image in our minds. But back at that point in time, the sport was driven by gambling. It wasn't driven by entertainment. So people were betting on the outcomes of these matches. So the matches had to look legitimate. And they did look legitimate because a lot of the moves that they're using in professional wrestling were the same moves that they'd be using in amateur wrestling. It's just that, you know, they tended to be a little bit more liberal with the interpretation of the rules in, uh, in professional wrestling. You know, they were a lot more uh, willing to let the wrestlers use, you know, potentially injurious holds and things like that. Uh, but, you know, th- throwing a punch at a guy, at least in Western Canada in 1915 and, and connecting on the jaw was just going too far.
0: So and I, I wanted to kind of, I don't know, tie this into this sort of next part of the story, if you will. So we're talking about wrestling, not just being perceived as a legitimate sport in the ring, The not from a fan perspective, just it's from the, the participants perspective as well. Yes, they're working, quote unquote, but it's it's not, it's not a big, uh, not a big cooperation fest, we'll say. So you have a, a guy like Jack Taylor, who you know, in in the era the nineteen fifteen era, if you will, when and again we're tying this all into the World War One um, situation that was also happening. Am I correct in what I was reading that? He between matches, he was also, um, training with members of the Canadian Expedition Forces.
1: Oh, absolutely. So he, uh, yeah. So he did a lot of that when he was in, um, you know, he'd be in Saskatoon, for example, or in Winnipeg. So yeah, like these these guys would would train with members of the public. So oftentimes, what would happen is they'd open up a bit of a training camp. So they weren't having matches every week. They would kind of train up for these matches. So they would, you know, get some guys who had some wrestling experience, maybe some heavyweights or light heavyweights, and uh, these would be their training partners. And, you know, they might they might work out of a gymnasium, they might work out of a YMCA. And this type of stuff was, was something that built hype for the matches, because often these training matches or these training sessions would be attended by the public. I mean, there's records in you know some cases of, of some of Jack Taylor's matches uh, or rather the, the training sessions before his matches being attended by, by hundreds of people, and this was really common. So it was absolutely critical for a professional wrestler to be able to, to absolutely protect themselves and be able to wrestle because they'd be taking on these different training partners, and you wouldn't want a guy who could get in there and he had some wrestling abilities and say, well, you know, here's this big-time pro and I'm going to show him up. Yes. That, that couldn't happen, so you had to have the wrestling skills. You know, they use these terms like worker and, and, and shooter later on. Uh, I don't know precisely when those terms developed, but I can, I can probably say with some certainty that those terms didn't exist at this time because everybody could wrestle. It wasn't until the 1920s when you see guys like Wayne Munn who were being protected by the, the wrestling trusts who were coming in from other sports and, and, and don't have a wrestling ability – uh, everybody during this time could wrestle. They were either you know, solid at it or superlative at it, as was the case with Jack Taylor.
0: Just in terms of that term, I don't think that that terminology started to really permeate anything until the f- late 30s, early 40s when you started to see more not showmanship. I don't want to use that word, you know in, in a misleading or a derogatory term but when you started to have a little bit more cooperation if you will in in matches but you still yep. knew that the the guys could still wrestle right. just it was a little bit yeah a, a little bit um less of the anything can happen in the in the actual match i'm not talking about um you know i'm not talking about uh a match not going the way that the fans are talking about i mean like something happening in the actual match like a sleeper hold coming out of nowhere or you know a guy's just gonna you know take care of business for himself kind of thing
1: yeah so you know over time you find that fewer and fewer wrestlers um have those skills but nevertheless um you know, a lot continue to preserve those types of skills that were simply commonplace in the, the 20s and, and before. So, you know, later on, you've got guys like Luthez, for example, Carl Gotch, uh, Billy Robinson, and, uh, you know, all of these guys, George Gordienko, for example, they're the guys who learned these old skills of, of catch-as-catch-can wrestling from, from guys of an earlier generation, from the guys who would have been of Jack Taylor's uh, generation. And, you know, they were serious wrestlers uh, on top of wanting to, you know, make money from it, which is the the bottom line. So they continue to kind of preserve those skills of, of, you know, authentic professional catches, catch can wrestling. Um, so yeah, I mean, in, in 1915, they wouldn't have had the the context for a term like worker shooter because you're just a good wrestler or you weren't.
0: So keeping in mind of, you know, the three main topics here protecting yourself uh, being a good wrestler and making money, I had read a story, and correct me if I'm wrong, please, but was there a situation where he was in Saskatoon in 1915 and he put up a bounty of $5 for any man who could come and last a minute in the ring with him?
1: Yeah, that's right. So um, that was, a, that was a, a public challenge, and I believe he even extended that uh, to members of the Canadian Expeditionary Force. And nobody, nobody claimed that. So you come in, you could challenge him and then he'd, he'd take you out. And, and that was it. You know, keep in mind, like a lot of the wrestlers at this point in time, they could pin guys, but they also had a pretty solid repertoire of, of submission holds. So they'd have toe holds like Jack Taylor commonly used the, the toe hold finish. That was something that was not invented by Frank Gotch and Farmer Burns, but it was developed by them. And that became sort of Frank Gotch's most famous technique Uh, In reality, he didn't win most of his his matches with that. He used a half Nelson and and crotch hold, but he'd use like a toe hold to maybe set it up. Yes. Um, But yeah, so he would, uh, you know, he could do that. There'd be double wrist locks. Um, Today, it's probably most common. If people are interested in submission grappling, it's a a Kimura, that was a common hold, the hammer locks. So these guys all had a, a, you know, large repertoire of submission holds they could draw on. And so a guy like Jack Taylor, who was, uh, you know, well-trained, and he was wrestling all the time, and he was a big, strong guy. Uh, you know, he'd done tons of manual labor in his life, on top of being a just a fabulous uh, athlete. He had all these things working in his favor, so it's it's highly unlikely, unless a, a ringer came into the mix, that, that uh, you know, somebody with at least just
0: a little bit of wrestling skill is going to be
1: much of a challenge for him at all.
0: Yeah, to say the very least, I'm, I'm sure about that. So as you know, the unfortunate circumstance of World War Two, kind of rolls around in Western Canada, is did that kind of force him at that point to move down to America to wrestle? Because I understand that there's, there's you know, a manpower issue in Canada at that time. I believe that that was just before uh, conscription had started. So around this area of time, is this when Jack Taylor decided to move down to America to wrestle? Yeah, so the
1: First World War, you know, starts in, in 1914 and ends in, in 1918, and Canada imposes conscription in 1917, but Jack Taylor, uh, a bit before that, heads down to the States. So, um, quite a, I should say, too, that quite a number of, of Canadian professional wrestlers uh, enlisted, and ultimately, Jack Taylor does join the military, but he does it on the American side for the First World War. He oh, he Canada. did?
0: Okay, I, I didn't yeah. I wasn't able to see any of that.
1: Yeah, so he he, he uh, did join. He didn't go overseas, um, but he, he did sign up. But by 1915, 1916, he's doing a lot of wrestling out on the West Coast, particularly out of, like, Spokane. So um, the promoter out there was one of his early opponents, and I mentioned before, John Berg. So John Berg's I, I guess they became friends, and and John Berg was, was promoting out there. And so he starts, he starts to wrestle a lot in Washington. He even goes into Idaho and I, I know was kind of an interesting place because if you look at all those territory maps, you can find them online. There's a few areas that are complete dead zone, <laughs> you know, it's the, the no man's land, but Idaho is one of them, but he did wrestle quite a few matches in places like, uh, you know, off the top of my head, but Lewiston would be a big city and, uh, 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 I think, uh, like, Kellogg, Idaho. So he's wrestling in a lot of these these other towns, and so that's where he starts to spend a lot of time in the United States. Um, he's wrestling quite a bit, too, out of uh, Lincoln, Nebraska, by, you know, around 1917 or so. Um, and you don't really see him wrestling in Canada at Canada at all during those war years after 1915.
0: Yeah, like, I had seen some match results, and, you know, quite a bit of them, were coming out of uh, out of Nebraska which I just you wouldn't think that somebody at that time you know uh, uh, Canadian born out East moves out west then goes down to the states and winds up in Nebraska just it's it's a strange series of events right so
1: he actually what he ends up doing is he ends up getting a ranch down in Wyoming not too far away from the the Eklund ranch they're basically neighbors and they would uh, you know travel back and forth and you uh, you know, spend time with one another, uh, but yeah, he'd be wrestling a lot out of uh, like Lincoln, Nebraska, for example. Um, yeah, and that's that's sort of what he's doing. And and during this time, he's challenging a lot of the people who are, you know, the top rank wrestlers. We're talking like the Joe Steckers uh, we did face once, by the way, in a, a fairly interesting match. Uh, before that, in 1913, uh, rather 1915. Uh, and and Charlie Cutler and Ed Lewis, and he's just not getting matches with that top tier of of, of wrestlers, despite the challenges.
0: So, as we kind of move out of World War I um, and into the early 20s, Jack Taylor ends up coming back up to the prairies, and that's really when the prairies kind of recognize him as as being like, you know, he's home, like our guy is home. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, absolutely. He was wrestling, um, you know, by 1919, he's coming back, and he's wrestling in, in Vancouver. Uh, but, you know, for the most part, he's he's wrestling a lot in, in Wyoming uh, because he's got a ranch there. He's wrestling in Casper, Wyoming a lot. He's moving over to Colorado. Uh, but, yeah, so he comes back to Canada in the summer of 1922, and, you know, in my estimation, that is the apex of his career. The next two or three years, that is where where Jack Taylor is uh, basically the undisputed king of wrestling in Western Canada. And it was the right time because people had been deprived of wrestling for quite a number of years, and Canada was ready for another boom.
0: And at that time, were the promoter they were. Promoting him as the champion of all Canada if if what I've read is correct
1: yeah, so You know the issue with a lot of these titles is that there's There's no governing body to to give these things. They're, they're, they're kind of by either you claim them or simply by a claim but, <laughs> uh, You know and, and that's it now Would he be able to justify being the, the best heavyweight in Canada during that time? I think so for sure but There was no sanctioning body for that, but he also wants to, by that point in time, claim greater titles.
0: And correct me if I'm wrong, but so it might not have been 1922, might have been just after that, but he ends up taking up residence here in Winnipeg, correct?
1: Absolutely, yeah. He's right in the city city directories and his occupation is listed as professional wrestling champion
0: which like that's tremendous if anything yeah. if anything speaks to to uh what he brought to the table i think that's it for sure
1: yeah now it might have been written champion professional wrestler uh one of the two but it's it's in the city directory so yeah he's uh he left his ranch and uh he realizes that there's there's certainly money to be made as the heavyweight standout in western canada and why not move to winnipeg i mean winnipeg's the biggest city in western canada um and it's a great sort of jumping off point because there's railway connections. You can kind of get where you want. And uh, that's where Jack Taylor sets a base.
0: Especially back at that point in time, Canada or Winnipeg specifically was such a, a focal hub of, of trade, of transport, of everything. Essentially, if you're going out west, you're going through Winnipeg. Vice versa, if you're going from west to east, you're going through Winnipeg. Or if you're coming up and doing big international travel, everything was filtered through here because of – and and it still is to this day a very large um, train and other transportation hub. It's It still is. We have – we just built in the last couple of years what's called Centerport Highway and it's essentially a massive acreage of just it's, – it's there for transportation for getting – you know large trucks a large inventory in and out and all things like that so for all things that have changed over the last hundred years some things still say the same but so he's here in winnipeg and they're drawing insane crowds like i, I was reading some numbers where they're they're doing you know two thousand three thousand people to to each event that he's that he's uh wrestling in yes so you know
1: 1922 it starts out with a bit of a whimper, like his, his first match back, uh, it didn't really draw very well, but it was an important match, because he wrestled against, uh, in Winnipeg, he went by uh, Jatrinda Gulbar, but he was actually Goho Gulbar, and he was a really well-known uh, wrestler from, from India, and he came to North America, and the idea was to kind of become the to, you know, lay claim to the championship of the British Empire. So over over the next few years, Jack Taylor meets a number of these other people who might claim that, and he solidifies his claim uh, in Winnipeg to being the champion of the, the British Empire. Now, that day was really hot. It was a, a sweltering day, and you can imagine no air conditioning in, in the building that they were in. So it didn't draw a huge crowd, but it, it planted that spark. Yes, and he yeah, and then a few months later, uh, he wrestles against uh, Stanislav Zabisco, and Zabisco had been, um, you know, he'd been claiming the world's heavyweight title, so he was the premier wrestler on the, the American continent, and Jack Taylor wrestles him and does really well. He wrestles a draw against him. Now that wasn't by, by, by no means was that the first time they they ever wrestled one one another, but that was the first time they wrestled one another in in Western Canada, in, in Winnipeg. And it's really there that the, the boom starts. And there's just an explosion of wrestling on the prairies during the 1920s. And it wasn't just Jack Taylor. Jack Taylor was the heavyweight yes. star, but there was just everywhere there was professional wrestling over the next few years.
0: And there was it was also, you were starting to see an influx of American talent now coming up as well at that point in time. Yeah,
1: a, a ton of wrestlers are coming up now. Canada never had a, a huge number of, of of wrestlers that they could draw on domestically, so a lot of the, the talent did come up from the United States. Uh, a lot of them ended up actually—well, I shouldn't say a lot of them, but a number of them ended up, uh, you know, settling here for the for the rest of their lives or for for extended periods of time. So you have a lot of guys that are coming up. Uh, one of the, the challenges, though, is that there weren't a lot of heavyweights, not a lot of heavyweights, so they had to. They had to import a lot of different heavyweights, uh, well-known American heavyweights there to wrestle Masters with Jack Taylor. But, you know, you have to think about it. A lot of the wrestlers were um, like middleweights, maybe light heavyweights. Yes. But it kind of it makes sense, right? Because most people were middleweights. Like now the average weight of a person in North America is about 197 pounds. But if you go back to, you know, if you want records of the stuff, there's a few places you can find it. You can find it through uh, enlistment records for for soldiers, but another really good place for stuff like that are, are insurance records
0: because they keep all this data. Oh yeah. And, yeah, and they've got actuarial people trying to figure out
1: angles and how to, uh, you know, how to how to you know maximize the, the insurance industry's profits. But you know, in 1912, the average male was like five foot seven and, and three quarters thereabouts, and uh, about 150 pounds. And the middleweight limit for wrestlers at that time was 158 pounds, so most of the wrestling talent then were were guys around that size. It was pretty rare to come across guys like Jack Taylor. Now, Jack Taylor starts his career in the the high 190s. His, his peak weight was probably around 212 to 215. That's a really big man by the standards of of the teens and twenties.
0: And six foot one as well.
1: Right. Yeah, really big guy.
0: So. He, Uh, at that point in time and we're we're sticking in the in the early mid-20s now so his home base is here in winnipeg but he's still going uh through Saskatchewan and through alberta did he make very many trips down to the states at that point in time
1: oh yeah he's still traveling down to the states um but yeah he's appearing in, in in towns of of all size but yeah he's he's traveling a bit down to the States, but he's so busy in Western Canada that he doesn't really venture to too many other places like in 1923 or so. Um, but you do see by 1924, um, he's starting to wrestle in New York.
0: Oh, wow. Uh,
1: yeah. So he's started to make inroads there. Um, I'm not sure if the listeners would be kind of uh, interested in, you know all the issues with wrestling trusts and certain wrestlers being blackballed from uh competing at the, the top ranks of the heavyweight division. Uh, but basically, Jack Taylor was one of those people who for many years had been excluded from title shots and had been excluded from you know wrestling in some of those big eastern cities. In fact, you don't see him wrestling uh in the east at all.
0: And wh- wh- why is that fact, though, exactly?
1: It's because of who he's associated with, so like, um there's, you know, there were, there were various wrestling trusts and there were guys who, you know, controlled like, like Ed Lewis, for example, um, you know, him and his manager, Billy Sandow, they, they ended up getting a lock on the, um, you know, the heavyweight title. Uh, but there were, there were people who were kind of on the outs with, with those promotional cartels or with those, uh, those, those trusts, if you will. And Jack Taylor was associated with guys who were on the outs with that. So for example, um, he seemed to be kind of uh, running buddies with um, a person by the name of of J.C. Marsh or Oli Marsh, one by a variety of names. And there's just a, a, a there's a, a rich and crazy series of stories associated with with him. Uh, but he managed a guy by the name of of Marin Plastina, and Marin Plastina was one of these guys who who you know said he couldn't get a title shot, and uh, he's been cut out from from. Um, You'll know, be able to wrestle Ed Lewis and, and some of these other guys who are, who are right in the top ranks. And, and Jack Taylor was one of those people as well. He was considered to be a trust buster. and a trust buster was a guy who didn't go along with what the trusts wanted, considered to be hard to control. Um, and as a result you're not going to grant a guy like that uh, a title shot because he
0: might double cross you. so the, the thinking went. because yeah, they're worried about losing their title to somebody he's gonna do who knows what with it at that point.
1: Right. So a guy like Ed Lewis. I mean, Ed Strangler Lewis, there's probably nobody in North America who could have beaten him in a, a legitimate contest. He would have just, he had an insane endurance and he could have just lasted the guy out and, and used his defensive wrestling. Um, but he didn't want to be bothered with, with having to wrestle contests and things like that. plus you know if you get a guy if you're wrestling along in a competitive, uh, in a cooperative fashion, the guy gets a good position on you because you let him, well then he can take advantage of you right? Yes. So a lot of these these guys and this even goes back to before the first world war they would they would employ a policeman. So this is a guy that they had to get through to be able to wrestle the champion. So there's a, a fairly famous account of Marion Plastina. Uh, Wrestling John Pesek, who was actually one of Jack Taylor's great rivals, um, um, in in a match and ends up in a it's just a a big disqualification schmaws. Basically, John Pesek starts hitting Plastina, etc. But anyways, the the roundabout way of saying is that Jack Taylor wasn't a guy who was welcome in those trust circles. But he's starting to it seems show maybe better faith uh, by 1924, and he's making those those trips out to new york but he does not get a title shot with ed lewis
0: so when he when he comes back then like from his stint in new york he's still in western canada when when did he make the choice or what drove him to make the choice to head out into southern ontario
1: well, that's that's a number of years later. So he ends up going back down to the States, and he's wrestling all over. You know, I really view the the 1920s uh, from about 1925 mm, to about 1928 or so, 1929. Jack Taylor is sort of just wandering. Like, he's getting, he's getting up in age. Um, you know, he's not securing title shots. And he's just – he's wrestling out in, in San Francisco. He's wrestling in Montana. He's wrestling – and uh, Columbus, all over the place.
0: But he, he um, seemed to lack, like, there's no there was no rhyme or reason almost at that point for him.
1: Right, right, yeah. So, um, he's, he's back in, in Saskatoon for a, a good stint of matches in 1929. But then he goes down in, um, sort of in, like, the spring of 1929 to help relaunch professional wrestling. In Toronto, um, under Ivan Mikolosz promotion, and that's where we start to see the introduction of a really a completely different style of professional wrestling in Canada.
0: So, t- when he goes into to like and at the at that point, either Toronto was completely dead, like it or dark, I guess would be the term used at the time. So they go in. And from my understanding, it was a slow start like we had had here in Winnipeg. but it takes very little for it to start uh, start get the ball rolling down there, correct?
1: That's absolutely correct. Yeah. So the, the first shows don't really draw. But then after you know by the time uh, like the summer of 1929 is rolling uh, in, wrestling is, is now on fire. And Toronto uh, initiates it. But it spreads out to all of these centers, all throughout southern Ontario. Uh, you know, Brantford and London and, and Kitchener. So it's it, it it's localized initially to Toronto, but then it explodes all throughout that region. So there's, and this is heavyweight wrestling. Now keep in mind when we were talking about earlier eras, it wasn't exclusively heavyweight. This is when the heavyweights come to dominate in in southern Ontario, and this is when you see the introduction of more or less what we would recognize as as modern professional wrestling with a lot of the more uh, entertainment related aspects people aren't gambling on this stuff anymore it's it's more about uh you know drawing uh, attendance and enough attendance to be able to pay for the wrestlers and and putting on a show
0: and and that that's really where you start to see guys start bringing personality to the to the match right now it's not specifically what you can do in the ring now. You're starting to add layers to the presentation. Now you're having, I know we're still not at the point of promoters per se or promotions, but now you're starting to see that marketing change. Right, there, right. There's a drastic difference in the way that the wrestling matches and shows were viewed in the early 30s, a stark difference than as they were presented and viewed in the 20s.
1: Absolutely correct. So, you know, you did have, like, Ivan Michaeloff is a guy who, who launches wrestling and he becomes the big promoter in, in Toronto. Later on, in fact, he, he does some of that out, out west. But, um, yes, it's more personality driven. You have more matches on a card. The matches are much shorter as well. You know, back in when Jack Taylor was starting his career, a lot of these matches were commonly last an hour and a half or more um, and they were they were effectively endurance contests so yeah, much shorter matches more flair you start to see a lot more uh, you know rough stuff and and you know wor- you know cheating and you start to see really the beginnings maybe of of, of good guys and bad guys or, or heels and baby faces so that's that's really starting in Canada at this point in time but they were following suit because this was the, the type of change that was already occurring for a few years Uh, In the United States, so uh, Jack Hill would have been down in the United States. You've noticed these changes, and then he comes back to Canada um, and into Toronto in 1929, and um, he's he's ready and raring to go to start plying his uh, new trade, if you will. And you know to speak to the difference in skills, what people can do is they can go on YouTube and they can see some footage of the Joe Stecker Earl Caddick match from 1920, and that gives you a good idea of what a professional wrestling match looked like when Jack Taylor was early on in his career. Yes. And you can even go on. There's another one, too, from about 1930, and it's between Jim Londa, uh, Jim Londos and Dick Schickat. And that's that's somewhat similar to what you see with um, uh, the Catech ones, a little bit more showmanship. But then a short while after that, you look at the match between Ed Strangler Lewis and, and Dick Schickat, and it's, it's much more moving towards what we would now recognize as, as professional wrestling. So I encourage anybody who's listening to go on and look at those matches. So that way you can visually contextualize the evolution of professional wrestling over the, a period
0: of about a decade. So as we kind of move through the 30s, I, I understand that he spent um, a few years in the Toronto area at that point. Was he still making shots out oh, west at that point as well?
1: No, he isn't really. He's he's tra- traveling down to um, doing a lot of matches in, in Buffalo. He's doing a lot of matches in New York. Uh, so he's uh, kind of the, the the Northeast of the United States, and um, he doesn't really come back to Canada. Uh, he goes he goes back out west actually for a while, and then he's back up in in Canada in uh, about 1931. So that's when he. That's when he comes back to Canada and he goes to Alberta. And really, from this point forward, Alberta becomes his his main
0: base of operations. Okay, and then that carries us into, you know, the 1932, 1933. That's when he starts to kind of slow down a little bit, correct?
1: Yeah, so, I mean, he's getting up there um, in years by that point in time. Um, he, he wrestles quite a bit through. 32 uh quite a lot in in 33 and uh after 33 that's when he really starts to to wind his his career down um he ends up uh, he gets a a farm up in the kind of the, the peace river country for a while and there's a there's a kind of a, a budding professional wrestler up there who's you know, t- trying to get his career going and, and whatnot, but then Jack Taylor, I guess, just comes out of retirement to, to face him, and he and he beats him, and then he, <laughs> he you know, poor guy's just getting started, and Jack Taylor's said, like, no, no, I'm coming just back. Just crushed oh. him. Right, right, so, uh, but you're quite right, like, after after 1933, that's when he starts to wind down his career, and it's really around 1933, where you see the Jack Taylor's, passing of the torch
0: um as as his career
1: comes to an end
0: and so there's there's a little bit of confusion it seems on him passing the torch now <clears throat> i had read that he had kind of we we used the term dropped the title but we'll say relinquished his championship belt to was it two different individuals but only one was recognized
1: yeah, so the first guy is uh, Vancouver, a guy of Jack Forsgren, and uh, you know he's a, he's a, a good sized heavyweight, and uh, so he loses to him first of all in, in February 1933, and, and with it the laurels. You know, to be to be honest, I don't know if Jack Taylor ever actually had a belt. You know, a lot of these guys had belts.
0: That's and, right. Uh, yes, you know, and I should have specified. You're you're correct about that.
1: Now he might well have had, but I've never actually seen him pictured with a belt, and and I've seen tons of other guys with with, with belts, and they might be some some fairly obscure uh, you know title claims compared to being a champion of, of Canada or the British Empire. Um, but in any event, he he kind of relinquishes that that claim, or or does the honors, or or you know, however you want to term it, uh, in the spring of 1933. But there's another heavyweight who probably has better prospects for fame and fortune than Jack Forsgren and that's Earl McCready now Earl McCready is an absolute legend not only in professional wrestling uh, but in amateur wrestling Um, he had claimed the Canadian uh, heavyweight title multiple times before he began uh, his his professional career, did that throughout the 1920s he goes on, he uh, doesn't do well at the Olympics, but he wins gold at the uh, British Empire Games in 1930, and that's the, the forerunner to today's Commonwealth Games. Yes. And then he's, yeah, and a few years before that, he's actually scouted and recruited down to Oklahoma A&M. So Oklahoma A&M uh, is building the wrestling program under E.C. Gallagher. And E.C. Gallagher's uh, a tremendous coach. He was actually an engineer, and he applied some of his engineering. He didn't wrestle but applied his engineering principles to the sport of wrestling. And he's considered to be, despite his lack of actual training in the sport, to be a a real innovator. And even to this day, um, you know, Oklahoma is one of the great powerhouses of of amateur wrestling. So he goes down there, wins uh, NCAA titles, and he's the only person who's in both the Canadian and uh, American Amateur Wrestling Halls of Fame but you know, as as this the popular saying goes, you can't eat your medals. Yeah. So he can, yeah. So he turns pro in 1933. He faces uh, Jack Taylor. So Jack Taylor kind of dropped his his claims, but a, probably a, a better guy comes along to carry the mantle, and that's Earl McCree. So um, they face one another, um, and Jack Taylor loses, and then they follow up with another match. Well, they do it in Calgary, and then they do it in in Winnipeg, uh, and he loses both times. And then after that, Earl McCready is the guy who claims the Canadian title and uh, also the British Empire title. And he wrestles in Canada. He also goes down to uh, Down Under uh, and wrestles there, and he becomes uh, you know, a, a definitely Canada's greatest wrestler of the
0: 1930s. So, and people need to understand as well, this is before, well before the time of the internet and dirt sheets and all that kind of stuff, so you could in essence, have a title match where he would drop the title in Calgary, then not replicate the match, but replicate the event of him passing on the title or the laurels in Winnipeg. Still both equally fantastic events, but the people in Calgary, unless they drove to Winnipeg, would have no idea, right? Or unless somebody phoned over. So it's not that you're trying to... You know, what's the word I'm looking for? Not that you're trying to mislead anybody, but you're trying to give fans, like, there is still that option of fans seeing this performance and this passing of the torch live in person in a couple of different I mean, I, avenues.
1: Sure. So, I mean, I think that's particularly the case when, you, when uh, you're when you looking at uh, his loss to Jack Forsgren, uh, which is in Vancouver. Uh, versus his matches against Earl McCready, which are in Western Canada. In Western Canada, I like think he's of Calgary, Regina, Winnipeg, they all sort of operated in one another's orbit, but you know the West Coast was somewhat of a, a different entity, and it's really unlikely that um, someone in, in Calgary and Winnipeg uh, is going to be picking up an issue of the Vancouver Sun and, uh, and, and, and reading that result. So,
0: yeah, you could, you could get away with a lot in those days before the internet, for sure. So, after he, he kind of passes the torch, if you will, he's, he was uh, doing farming in Alberta, still at that, in that particular point in time. Um, from my understanding, it, it is 1939, kind of, when he has his last series of matches?
1: Yeah, so he, he kind of has a comeback in, in 1936, and he wrestles through 19... Like, through the... Like, through the fall of 1936. And then he's... And then he's done. And then, yeah, he comes back and he has a few matches in, uh, in, in 1939. Now, the fans were pretty receptive to him in 1936. But I must say that uh, by 1939, they weren't. I mean, he was too old. His wrestling style would have been uh, completely outdated it would have been slow he wouldn't be able to keep with the times uh, so he wasn't really well received in that final hurrah uh, if you will in 1939 time had passed him by although he helped to introduce uh, quote-unquote modern professional wrestling uh, to Canada in 1929 uh, a decade later that art uh, had continued to evolve and you know be really tough for a guy like Jack Taylor who by 1939 is
0: He's, he's what? He's well into his fifties, fifty, probably fifty-three years yes, old. Yes, yeah. Tough to keep yeah, and I, you know, we've seen it over even the course of this program. Um, you know, guys like Gene Kaniski, who wrestled into his his seventies. You know, it's although he was. Respected and and it was well received here in Winnipeg. He uh, it was when he had his final match and he was uh or maybe it wasn't seventy maybe it was sixty eight. I uh, maybe a couple of years off. Send your hate tweets to me on Twitter. It's fine. But anyways, <laughs> you know time passes. These guys by and yes, there's there's a connection with the fans, and yes, there's the respect factor. But you know to your point, there's only like what are you gonna do at that point? If you if if you can't follow what's happening with the times and unfortunately you're, you're just out of it.
1: Right. And you know, the other thing is that, you know, wrestling during, um, during Jack Taylor's time, there wouldn't have been a lot of, uh, you know, to, to use that again, the, the vernacular that I'm hesitant to use a high spots or, or big bumps or anything like that. Like overwhelmingly the wrestling during that time was, was Matt based, but wrestling is a tough, tough sport. It is a, even even without dropping guys and slamming them, it is a, a grind on the body. It's a grind on the joints. And, you know, you, you imagine wrestling, uh, you know, hour and a half, two hour matches, how absolutely exhausting that is and the, the toll that would take on your body. So, all those things are going to uh, accumulate. Like, he had, he had one bad incident in particular. Uh, he was wrestling against Stan Stasiak in uh, 1929. And this is something that kind of cut his Southern Ontario run a bit short, but. Stan Stasiak, not to be confused with the guy who had the really brief uh, WWF run in the 1970s, the original Stan Stasiak. Uh, he body slammed Jack Taylor, and Jack Taylor broke his leg.
0: Jeez. Um, yeah,
1: so he did have he did have setbacks, right? And he obviously had injuries. And beyond, you know, things that were you know injuries like that that were public spectacles, I mean, we can speak about a lot of injuries he had over the years. It's just that grind, uh, that wear and tear on the body. And by 54... Uh, you're, you're really not going to be able to do it.
0: So after his wrestling career had come to an end, and he he's doing his farming, um, what was life like for Jack Taylor during that point in time, up until his, uh, his passing?
1: Jack Taylor continued to farm. He did maintain, it seems, some ties to the wrestling business. So, The last time uh, that I'm aware of that he appeared in the ring was uh, 1945. He was a a special guest referee. I think Vic Christie, uh, you know, well-known wrestler from that period, uh, wrestled a lot in the West Coast, uh, was good friends, for example, with uh, Judo Gene LaBelle, known as one of the great sort of uh, ribbers in in, in the wrestling business. (laughs) Um, Yeah, he's really, really well-known. I think Gene, Gene LaBelle's autobiography covers some of those stories pretty well. Uh, But, he was uh, a referee for that match and he becomes physically involved and uh, you know, he's, he's, he wasn't, you know, he wasn't a little tiny guy and he was a wrestler decided to, to uh, uh, a referee, rather decided to impose his will a few times in the match. Uh, But beyond that, he, he didn't really seem to be involved directly with wrestling, but he did maintain ties. So for example, when Stu Hart goes back to Western Canada and he starts his promotion um, out of Edmonton, uh, there's some pictures from that time of you know Stu uh, of, of Jack Taylor, for example, in his senior years, and um, he is with Helen Hart. Wow! So he's yeah, he still maintained some some ties to to the wrestling business. I believe those photos would be available through the uh, the Glenbow Archives. So those connections were still there, and you know beyond that, in as his year went years went on, he did train. Or at least have a hand in, in training a, a few wrestlers, so his legacy, I suppose, continued to live on.
0: Yeah, it's it's interesting, and we had we had done the Stu Hart episode, our first um, episode of grappling with Canada. So I would highly encourage anybody to go back in the archives and check that out. But you could almost directly correlate some of the people in. Canadian wrestling history, who may not have come up if it wasn't for a guy like Jack Taylor.
1: Yes, that's correct. So, like Jack Taylor was a a boyhood hero of, of Stu Hart, and uh, so the legend goes. Anyhow, uh, Stu Hart, who didn't even he had no no money. I mean, your your podcast covers that exceptionally well. How how poor he was living in the prairies, uh, you know, living in a tent. In the in the 1920s, and then finally, you know, they actually moved to the city in the 19, 1930s. But he didn't have money to attend a wrestling match, but uh, he nevertheless was a, a fan of sports. So he he sneaks in to a match, and I suppose that's where he is. Uh, you know, first lays eyes on on uh, Jack Taylor, who he probably had only you know come across in the newspapers, and that's that's an, in. I understand that was in in Calgary in, in 1932.
0: Yeah, it's, uh, I'm, I'm trying to think what you, you're probably right in regards to that, but yeah, it's, it's wild. Like, and even just, you know, even moving on from guys like Stu you have like Gene Kaniski, who we just covered a, a few episodes ago, right? He had, I believe he met Jack in Edmonton is what it was. Yeah. You
1: know, actually, I, um. I wrote Gene Kaniski about that. Uh, I guess around 2004. Oh or my so.
0: God! No kidding.
1: Yeah, so so I wrote him a letter uh, because Greg Oliver uh, wrote a book and it has a section on uh, Jack Taylor in it. And I believe that uh, uh, you know Western, the, the Western Canadian historian, and particularly for the the territory area uh, par excellence is is Vance Nevada, Vern May. And I think that he might have played a role in getting that uh, Jack Taylor into um, Greg Oliver's book on the, the Hall of Fame's the Canadians. Yes. And uh, it's mentioned in there that uh, Gene Kaniski knew him. So I had to write Gene kaniski a letter. So I wrote him a letter asking these questions. And Gene <laughs> kaniski yeah, so I had like question one, question two. And Gene Kaniski sent my letter back to me, but with the answers beside.
0: Come on. Yeah. So oh, my I remember, God. I have that letter.
1: So not only that, uh, but he sent me, um, he sent me an autograph glossy, which I thought was really cool of him because he didn't need to do that. And then just uh, a couple years later, Gene Kaniski passed away.
0: Wow. Wow. That's, that's, that's incredible. What a story.
1: Yeah. So, so my understanding is that, you know, in his, his later years, he was, um, and again, this comes from, from Greg Oliver's work on the subject and his interview with Gene Kaniski is he was working like as a a doorman in some sort of a, uh, a gambling establishment or, or something like that and uh, that's probably where he um, met Gene Kaniski, and that might have been one of the last uh,
0: last jobs that he had well that's incredible what a what a small world sometimes all of this ends up being it's it's actually it's crazy to think about it when you sit down and think about you know throughout the years, who influences who? Who who winds up being whose mentor? Who trains who? The wrestling world is a lot smaller, you know, even with hundreds or you know, one hundred fifty years of history, than a lot of people kind of realize sometimes, especially here in Canada.
1: Oh yeah, everybody was was connected in 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 some way, you know, because these guys they all traveled around and they. Uh, you know, they, they, they get on the railways and they get bookings and then they go west and go back east. So you had, you know, for example, you'd have wrestlers from Montreal. Occasionally they traveled to Western Canada. Eugene Trombley, for example, was the great um, lightweight standout. Yeah, he beat uh, George Budner for the, the World's Championship. And he was the great, Canada's great lightweight wrestler. He wrestled on Western Canada. Um, you had other guys traveling from the west and, and going east. You had some guys like George Walker, uh, who was... You know, he'd be based out of a few different places. He was born in Ottawa. Sometimes he based himself out of there. Uh, Vancouver, where he was an amateur, he based his operations out of there. And sometimes he's basing him uh, in between there in uh, Fort William, Ontario, which was the subject of my first book, which was A Rugged Game. A Rugged Game looks at the history of wrestling at the Lakehead, which is a Thunder Bay district. So, yeah, these guys were, you know, they set a base in one community and then they'd set up another one. In the meantime, they'd be there training people too. Right. So they would go in there and sort of establish the sport. And, you know, some of those guys would start their amateur career. And then those guys, if they're good, they might graduate to being a pro. So there's just a huge level of of connectivity uh, across the
0: country. So as we start to wind up the program today, is there any other stories about Jack Taylor that we haven't covered that have really stuck out to you or that you wanted to make mention before before you wind up? Um,
1: yeah, I mean, there's there's so many different stories. I mean, I could talk about his rivalries. I could talk about his training. You know, I'll, I'll talk about his training because if we get into the the rabbit hole of his his rivalries, this <laughs> this is going to be far
0: too long. I think. I'd already got a big smile on my face about that too. <laughs> but yeah, so go I'll ahead. Sorry. About,
1: maybe I'll talk a little bit about his, his training.
0: Sure, okay? please. So,
1: so wrestlers during that that time, I think they they took their training very very seriously. So they were the wrestlers. Uh, a lot of them were wrestlers full time, and uh, these were very very grueling contests. So you know, beyond just wrestling in the ring, a lot of these guys would have to train outside the ring. So Jack Taylor was um, a fanatic about training. He did a lot of road work. So early, you know, if, if he's in a city preparing for a match, you could probably Uh, go out of your house and and start walking downtown and and there was jack taylor running down the streets at uh, (laughs) at seven in the morning probably running at at 10 miles and then he'd go to the gymnasium and do some wrestling and things like that but but jack taylor was also known for his grip and he would do all sorts of things to to build up the strength in his hand and apparently he would just walk around all the time and he kept uh like a, a racquet ball or a couple ball bearings or something like that in his his pocket, and he would constantly be working them and training his grip. Um, you know, I've done a, a you know a bit of uh, you know competitive submission grappling, and one thing you notice is, and anybody who's who's done Brazilian Jiu Jitsu or no gi grappling will also attest to the fact that their grip gets completely burnt out. Uh, during a match before almost anything else. Uh, anything else. So it's, it's imperative that you have a strong grip. That's That really makes a difference for a wrestler and to have a grip that has endurance. So Jack Taylor would always be working on his grip and he'd always be training. Um, and it just speaks to the absolute commitment that he had as an athlete to his craft. He was always thinking wrestling. He was always doing something to to improve his wrestling ability. And if you look at pictures of him from his prime, he was an incredibly impressive individual. Uh, unfortunately, not a lot of photos survive, but if you can, you can find a few of them from you know, the period around 19, you know, 1912 to 1919 or so, I mean, he doesn't have much body fat on him at all. And he's got enormous forearms, big, thick wrists. He had all the physical tools to be a wrestler, but he also had the mind for it and the dedication to take that natural talent and continually apply himself to master his craft.
0: I couldn't say it better myself. I think you uh, absolutely hit the nail on the head there. Um, before I actually let you go, uh, do you have anything uh, that you're working on coming down the pipeline?
1: Well... Um... In terms of wrestling, I don't have a, a huge amount uh, on the go right now. I have a project, a, a book project, um, that I hope will come to fruition. Um, but
0: uh, I'm not revealing too many more details about that. I, I've been working recently. With, you got to leave them with the T's after all. Come on.
1: Well, yeah, we'll, we'll see.
0: We'll see.
1: <laughs> hopefully in, um, hopefully in, uh, in 2022, there'll be a bit more of that forthcoming. Uh, lately, I've been working a bit with uh, Vern May, and Vern May's working on a, a book right now, so he's asked me to contribute to that. So I've I've, uh, I've written my portion of that book. Um, I've recently had the opportunity, I'm going to plug somebody else's stuff. Uh, you Yes, G. please. G. Um, uh, Steve Verrier is writing a book right now, uh, and I got to preview the manuscript. It's on George Gordienko, who was another great Western Canadian heavyweight, uh, one of the great uh, shooters, if you will, of the, the post-World War II era. I got to take a look at that book and, uh, and preview it. And I can say it's a, it's a, a very fine uh, piece of work that's coming up. And uh, you know, beyond that, I've got maybe a few ideas for, for books I mean, maybe people would be interested in how these wrestlers trained. You know, what did they do to get themselves into this type of condition? You know, some wrestlers are are even to the the present day noted for their conditioning. So what was involved in getting into shape for wrestling matches? So maybe there's something that uh, that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm mulling over some ideas around that and you know, basically, uh, you know what those wrestlers from that era might be able to teach us, uh, to teach us in the present day. And uh, besides that, I'm I'm teaching history at Lakehead University, and looking forward to the the upcoming term. So that's that's sort of what I've got going on with wrestling, I guess. And you know, periodically I write for Slam. So if you're interested in more on Jack Taylor, you can check out some of the stuff that I've written uh, for Slam Wrestling. I periodically review uh, books for Slam Wrestling, so you can check out my reviews on Slam. Um, I also sort of review uh, older books, so I've done some historical and technical analyses on older wrestling texts, and those are all available on on Slam Wrestling.
0: Yeah, just I want to say again, you know, we'll plug somebody else, but shout out to Greg Oliver and the team over at Slam Wrestling. They do great, great stuff. And and Greg was on the program for our Billy Two Rivers episode, and uh, what a great guy. But just, I I can't say enough good things about everybody at Slammerus, and they just—they're just great people. Great people. Um, where can people get in touch with you if they want to contact you in regards to this program or to pick your brain about anything else?
1: Well, if you're interested, you can look me up on Facebook. Uh, I maintain—I'm uh, I, I, fairly active on, on on Facebook in terms of social media. I have an Instagram account, but uh, not a lot on there. But you can—you can. You can uh, check me out there if you want, or you can, you can always drop me an email and my email address is c n h a t t o n at Lakehead dot C A. So if you want to talk wrestling or, you know, even if you've got, uh, you know, some, some information on Jack Taylor or you want to talk about Jack Taylor or, you know, who knows, maybe one of your family members uh, was in the early 20th century, a wrestler. I would, I would love to, to chat a bit with you. I must say that that is one of the great pleasures that has come out of um, writing books on the subject, is the fact that later on, uh, members of the family have contacted me um, with stories of their, uh, you know, of of, of their family, wow. and uh, it's that's, that's a really rewarding thing because you know I, I don't write a book like Thrashing Seasons or, or Rugged Game for the, the money of it. I mean, fundamentally, I want to unearth wrestling's history in Canada. I want to link it to, to larger social processes, um, so to the culture in which it occurred. And also, I want people to be aware of these wrestlers, because there's so few wrestlers from that period who are known. And if I can do a little bit to, to kind of unearth their careers and bring that back to public light,
0: then I'll, uh, I'll consider my work worthwhile. Well, on that, I have to say thank you so much for for everything that you've done in terms of uh, your writing for the books, for the research that you provided, uh, both in terms of Jack Taylor and others, and, uh, and everything else that you continue to do, and for being a part of the program today. I really, really appreciate your time.
1: It's my pleasure.
0: As we move to the finish of tonight's program, just wanted to thank, once again, Nathan, for joining the program. What an incredible interview that was, and I really do hope that you guys enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed hosting him on the program. Uh, He is honestly such a treasure trove of professional wrestling historical knowledge. Not only that, his knowledge of just wrestling itself, the technical side is what really impressed me. So I hope you guys got a lot out of that conversation. I know I did. And I can't wait to have Nathan on in the future. I'm also not sure if you all missed it or not. Maybe you did catch it, but we had a little tidbit of information about a good friend of the show and guest from the Gene Kaniski episode, Steve Verrier, about a project that he has in the works. Uh, I am can honestly say that I'm really, really, really looking forward to that one. I had a little bit of knowledge of that, uh, stemming from the conversation that I had off the air, if you will, with Steve during the Gene Knizky episode, but once again, I'm really, really looking forward to that. Uh, Steve is is a tremendous mind as well, and uh, honestly, the more people that we have on on the program like that, I think we can all take some information away and uh, and learn from uh, really some some masters of Canadian wrestling history. So. I am really, really looking forward to that. I hope that you guys all are as well. So like I said at the start of the program, I was going to read a five-star review that was left. Uh, This one comes courtesy of Podchaser uh, from reviewer Kelly Madden. Uh, She says, five-star review, really interesting show. This is in regards to the John 10 episode. I was entertained and actually managed to learn something. Interesting topics, great research, and a really likable host. This show has it all. Well done. Well, thank you, Kelly, and thank you everybody for your five star reviews. We've had a ton on uh, Good Pods, as well as Pod Chaser, and a couple on iTunes. Like I said, so whatever. P- listen to me talk you can tell we're getting to the finish folks that's always the way it goes Uh, whatever your podcasting platform of choice is say that three times fast Jesus Andy (laughs) Uh, if you can leave us a five star review it would help tremendously with with the visibility of the program and then like I said if you leave a five star review I'll make sure that it's aired on the next available episode As well, what I've started doing is on the Facebook group, um, once again use that wonderful Facebook search bar and join the Grappling with Canada Facebook group. What I've been doing is about a week before the next episode is released, I give a sneak peek about who that episode is going to be on and that gives some uh, some time for if anybody has some questions pertaining to that particular subject that they want answered on the show uh, i would make sure that those answer or those questions i should say get answered on the show as well so just a little wrinkle i wanted to throw in there once again on facebook use that wonderful search bar and uh, come join the grappling with canada group and while you're there don't forget to like the grappling with canada page once again, if you would like to find me on Twitter, it's at six underscore podcast. If you want to get in touch with me via email, six at gmail.com. There's no gimmicks, underscores, numbers, anything like that. It's all just straight up letters, six side at gmail.com. Uh, you can contact me there. You can also contact me, like I said, through Twitter or through the Facebook groups. One other thing that I did want to mention as well because I didn't and I've been really on this one and it's my fault but things have been very crazy at Casa de Taxman if you will Uh, but the t-shirts that we're going to be doing uh, they are still in the works it's just going to take me some time and like I said uh, portion of the proceeds are going to be donated to the Children's Hospital here in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. So, I'm looking forward to those. Honestly, the best place to get information for that when it's available will be on the Facebook group. So, like I said, go ahead and join that, as a few of you already have. Once again, if you want to buy a parched tax man a beer, you can do so at buymeacoffee.com grappling or on buymeacoffee.com. Apparently, I don't need any right now. But on buymeacoffee.com, you can just search that, uh, use that search bar and type in grappling with Canada. You'll find us there as well. You can, you can buy your old buddy Taxman a beer, if you will. So, just, some, just a fun little wrinkle I wanted to throw in there for you guys. But, uh, anyways, that's about it for myself, the Taxman, uh, for my guest, Nathan. And To all of you, I will say happy Canada Day, but more importantly, uh, happy seems to be end to this whole pandemic situation, so I don't know about everybody else, but Uh, By the time you hear this program, I will have had my second shot, which makes me fully vaccinated. Uh, My wife had hers, so she's very excited about that. So I'm looking forward to getting to some sense of normalcy, especially here in Manitoba. It has not been the greatest situation going in the nation. Uh, So I'm very grateful that that is going to be coming to an end. But like I said... A little bit of normalcy is going to do everybody some good. And uh, on this Canada Day, once again, I hope that you all take some time to uh, to learn a little bit about the history of Canada, uh, especially with all the dark portions of our history that have been coming out uh, lately that, quite frankly, need to be discussed and need to be uh, brought to light. So for all of that, for my fellow Canadians, for my guest tonight, Nathan, from myself the tax man I will leave you as I always do Take care of yourselves and each other Good night everyone and don't party too hard
1: while, Just grab your hat we'll travel like that's home star Maybe tomorrow I want to settle down Until tomorrow I'll just keep moving on Until tomorrow